he says, is there anything that needs to be done here? He says, you know what? One of the maintenance men just, just quit, and one of his jobs was to ring the bell every hour, and it's almost 3 o'clock. Can you go ring the bell? And the guy says, sure. And so he goes up to the belfry. He takes one, two, and after the second hit, the rope breaks. And he can't believe it, so he takes a running leap, and he jumps on the bell and hits it for the 3 o'clock, but unfortunately he falls and dies. Yeah. Sheriff's walking by, and he says, uh, my gosh, I can't believe what I just saw. He says, does anybody know this man? Somebody says, well, no, but his, his face rings a bell. <laughs> of course, the family's still in need of sustenance. So, so the uncle, you know, the brother-in-law, um, he takes the guy's job over at 4 o'clock after they've repaired the rope. He's one, two, three, and right where they repaired it on the fourth ring, the rope broke, and he died. He fell in the same place. And the sheriff's coming back from the cemetery. He can't believe he sees the same thing twice. He says, anybody know this guy? And somebody looks, he says, no, but... He's a dead ringer for his brother. No? Uh, Tracy and I were talking during the break, and we were talking about those, uh, what's it called, Me23, those chromosome tests? 23andMe. Has anybody done those? Have you? You know, Kermit the Frog uh, just took one. Yeah. Turns out he's a tad Polish. All right. That is that actually is funny. <clears throat> what? No, they're not in here. No, I'm. The Archbishop would have my head. Okay. Second conference. Talked a little bit about the Father, the Begetter. Let's talk about the Son. And here is that quote that I gave you from my exchange with that lady in Edinburgh. Now notice. Paul says, I died to the law. And it's an amazing thing, if you read the Old Testament, to see how much God cares about law, it seems. I mean, my gosh, we had that reading the other day that the the temple should be this many cubits, and it should be this long, and the priest should wear this kind of clothing, and not that kind. And all the prescriptions of the old law were, as Paul says in Galatians, a disciplinarian. And again, think of how your own homes ran. I imagine in the beginning with kids, there's a lot of rules, right? Your shoes go there, not there. Your coat goes there, not there. And I hope, as we all grew up, we started to do those things um, not out of duty, not out of fear of being punished, but for the sake of simply belonging to this family. That what was right, what was proper conduct, came more naturally, more easily, without thinking about it, simply because we were trained, And we were in love with this community, and we wanted to do our part. I imagine many of you have dogs, cats, hamsters, ferrets. Okay. Ten ten cats. All right. You have an Italian cat? You know what this is? That's a dead Italian. Um That's not funny. <laughs> when you and I bring an animal into our home, we, we, we impart some of our own humanity upon this animal, don't we? We teach this animal that, here, you know, that it goes here and not there. Uh, they learn the sound of car keys. Anybody have dogs that they hear the sound of car keys? They just go nuts, right? When we bring something less than who we are into our homes, 
we impart, if you will, a higher nature upon them. I mean, an otherwise feral dog would be very different if it lived in the wilderness over and against living, um, you know, on Clayton Road. When we're baptized, um, the Father brings us into his home, right? The Father... So we domesticate animals, if you will. The Father ecclesializes us. He brings us into his church, into his body, into his own life. And when that happens, at first the rules may seem kind of arduous. The rules may seem kind of like an end in themselves, right? And I imagine when we're little, you know, we had all those rules. We had all those things we had to do. Who had chore charts on the refrigerator, right? My day to do the dishes and whatnot, right? In one way, this is how I read the Old to the New Testament. The Old Testament's full of laws. It's full of things we have to do. It's the way God gets our attention and shows us that there isn't an antipathy or a contrast between love and law. Right? Again, those of you who raise children, those laws were signs of your love for them. Right? Wear your seatbelt. Wear your bike helmet. All those things that we expect people to do because we love them. Well, as we get to the New Testament, we start seeing things like this. I died to the law. The law is no longer of any avail. Huh? Why? Because Jesus Christ is trying to show us that the externals, again, have to come through intimate consecration. That we can do, externally, all the right things, but for the wrong reasons. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a 13th century monk, says there are three reasons of following Jesus. He says there are the slaves. The slaves will do what's right in order not to be punished. There are the soldiers. The soldiers will do what is right in order to get the payoff. I just want to get to heaven. And Bernard Clairvaux says, you know, those aren't bad, but they're not what the church wants for us. Thirdly, sons and daughters want to do what is right simply because they want to belong to this family. Simply because they see a reason and a beauty and a purpose to acting this way and not that way. And we argue as Catholics that at baptism, God imparted his own life upon us. That God gave us, we'll see in a little bit, a participation in his own divine life. And in Christ now, as Christ, you and I can do things that no humans can do on the natural level. We just saw what? We can call God Father. Not just being or power or might, but Abba. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can love our enemies. We can do things supernaturally that we can't do without supernatural grace, right? On the natural level, we can't do these things. And so Paul says, look, the law, the rules... They're not going to save our souls anymore. We need them, that's right, but they're not ends in themselves. They're pointers to something more. And then the next line, I live no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Now this is, I think, linked to that original being made in God's image and likeness. That when we let Christ into our soul, Christ doesn't live in us, but he lives in me. Meaning what? That's who I am meant to be. That is my fullest personality. That is my truest identity. To be another Christ. To let Christ live in me. So it's really exciting if you think of it. We humans are the only ones with this drama, if you will, built into our souls. St. Augustine was the first one to notice that if you read Genesis, at the end of each day, it says, and God saw that it was good. Morning came, evening came, morning followed. First day, second day, third day. The only day that doesn't get its own stamp and it was good is the sixth day. In Genesis, it says, And God looked over all things and saw that they were all very good. And Augustine's the first one to notice that the day on which you and I are created doesn't get its own stamp that it's over. He says this, 
Because you and I are the only creatures that aren't created perfect. Cows are what they are, right? Sharks, worms, grass, these things don't change. They are what they are for centuries, millennia. But you and I, right, you and I have a certain invitation built into relationship. And I imagine we can all picture people that are really good at what they do, but who they are is kind of lacking. We can all imagine people that aren't the kind of humans we would want to be. Hitler, I mean, right? We aren't necessarily fulfilling our nature, because our nature is to become Christ. And so the more we surrender to Christ, the more we become truly who we're meant to be. No other creature, no other being has that built into them. Okay, So Paul is trying to get us to transition from law to love, from rules to relationship. Right? That's what it's all about. But again, we can oftentimes think like natural Americans. What it means to be Christian is to get to Mass on Sunday. To get to, mm, mm. And so much of our spiritual wording, isn't it, friends? Always in the active, I'm going to do this. I have to. If you started to pray more out of the passive voice, Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. Lord Jesus, I allow you, or you will in me, always have that relationship and not just about our activities and our plans. We all know the creed. The creed was written in 325. Why? Down on the bottom left there, there's a guy named Arius. And Arius was a really popular priest in Egypt. And he couldn't imagine that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could be of the same divine substance as God the Father. He was afraid that that would become two gods. He didn't have the kind of sophisticated theology of the Trinity that will develop in the 4th century after him as theologians go to work on this problem. But he wants to, it's kind of funny, um, oh well, this, the word homo in Greek means same, hetero, different, but homoi means similar. When you put a little iota, a little i in the Greek, it, it, it alters it a bit. He was comfortable saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is like the Father, but he can't be truly of the same kind of nature. And so, in response, people like St. Athanasius, you probably heard of, wrote the Creed. And notice, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, Notice that word, substance. There's only one God, right? Divine substance. But, clone, he shares that perfectly with the Father and the Spirit. Now, I want to just think about this, because you and I say this every week. Notice what the church is teaching. That the Son of God is truly God. He's God from God, light from light, right? He's eternally begotten. You begat human children in time. You existed before them. But at their conception, they're as equally human as you, right? You have the same substance. You're consubstantial with your children, consubstantial with our parents, right? But the begetting of our children happens in time. There's a before and an after. But the begetting of the Son is eternal. There's never a time in which the Father is not Father. There's never a time in which the Son is not Son, okay? Now, what I find really intriguing about the Creed is that He is the only naturally begotten, the only begotten, right? But notice that last line, or the third line, fourth line, begotten, not made. You see, one son wasn't enough for the father. 
He wanted billions of sons and daughters. And so even though Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only begotten child of the Father, the, child, the children are made through Christ's love, adopted into the same family, and we all now call that first person the Trinity Father, we all call by extension Mary Mother, that you and I aren't begotten divine, you and I aren't begotten saintly, we're begotten human, we're begotten fallen, but in Christ we have been elevated or adopted into the same family. This is really amazing, that you and I are called to be children of the Father. And this is what it means to be a son or daughter ultimately, is to realize that the Father loves us just as much as he loves his Son. This is not bad Christian theology, believe me. The difference is how much we allow ourselves to be loved. And that's why I ended that first conference with that notion of surrender, of opening ourselves up. And here's the trick, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but the opposite of surrender is submission. And submission in Arabic is Islam, right? When we submit to another, we may do what the other says, but chances are we're not going to like it, and we certainly won't like them more. When you submit to someone, you may do what you're asked to do simply to keep the peace. That's the soldier mentality. That's the slave mentality. I'm going to submit to my ruler, right? I'm going to submit to my spouse. I don't want to fight about this. I'll just do it and get it over with. That's not what Jesus Christ asks of any of his adopted people. What he asks of us is to surrender. And what's the difference? Surrender is, you know what? I trust you more than I trust myself. I'll do what you say because I know you love me. I'll do what you ask because I know that this is for my greater good. Right? An analogy, it may work, it may not. But think of two women who come home at 5 o'clock. One of the women's husbands is on the porch and says, Give me those keys. Go upstairs and change. And come down to the kitchen. I made dinner. And you're going to like it. Now, she may do what she's told to do simply to keep the peace, not to have another tense night at home arguing. Imagine another woman comes home at 5 o'clock. Her husband says, hey, give me the keys. Go upstairs. I've laid out your favorite dress. And come downstairs. We're going to dinner. And he drives her to her favorite restaurant. Her favorite meal has already been pre-ordered. And they're going to have a good night, right? In one way, both women did the exact same thing. They both surrendered their driving. They both put on what they were told. They both ate what was given them. The first woman submitted because she's probably afraid of her husband or he's such a jerk that she just doesn't want to engage him tonight. The other woman surrendered because she knows her husband loves her and has her best interests in mind. And when Christ asks you for something, he's asking you to surrender. He knows who you are. He created you. He invented you. He knows all your desires and pursuits. He knows all your relationships. And sometimes when he asks us for something, it may seem hard at first, but I hope we can all look back at our life story and say, no, that was the right thing. I mean, I hope in one way you would choose this life all over again, right? I would marry this person. I would live here. I would, that, that's what true freedom is, saying, Lord, you've given me this life, and I've allowed myself to have it. And you and I can oftentimes feel like the Father's love is distant, not out of who he is, but how we refuse to open ourselves and surrender to that love. Okay? So this notion of being divinely adopted is important. In the letter to the Hebrews, well, Paul, I think, says right, that he learned obedience, son though he was, through suffering. Right? The orphan, the bastard children, they don't know what it's like to suffer because nobody expects anything of them. They don't know what rules are because they live in a wild kind of feral atmosphere. But the children who have been brought into the home are expected to be a certain kind of person. 
And we Christians, even though the law is of no avail, are expected to live kind of different lives. All right? And how is that possible? Well, through grace. All right? Through grace. Let's move on to the four reasons the Catechism provides on why the Word became flesh. Okay? In the 4th century, St. Augustine, he's surrounded by these pagan philosophers and thinkers, and they challenge him. They say, you know what? By this time, all the world thought of God as immutable. The Greeks, the Romans, God is unchanging. Okay. And so they challenge Augustine. If what it means to be divine is to be immutable, right? And that makes sense, right? You and I move because we need things. We move to, to, go, to go to the restroom. We move to get our food. We move to get our coats and jackets. You and I are imperfect creatures who are lacking. Therefore, we've been given that gift of um, freedom and movement and, and desire. God is not like that. God is purely simple. God simply is. God has everything right now. And so Augustine is challenged. If your God can't change, how did he become human? And Augustine, he's a rhetorician. He's trained as a, a lawyer. He has a really, I think, provocative analogy. He says, when I speak a word, it's not the word up here that changes. When I speak the word clock, I still have the word up here, right? What has changed to that immutable, invisible, interior word is the stuff that I've added to it so you can hear it. And think of it. John calls the second person of the Trinity the word, right? When the Father speaks his word in time, it's not the word that changes. It's all the stuff added to the word so we can know him, experience him, hear him, see him. It's not When Mary says yes, it's not God who changes, it's we who change. It's the stuff assumed to God to make him visible and sensible and audible in this world. And I really like that. When Mary says yes, all of humanity is elevated into heaven. When Mary says yes, all of human nature changes. And that may sound odd, but it's true. When someone in our community dies, it's sad. We read the obituaries, we go to the funeral, but it doesn't really alter us interiorly. But when that death occurred, for example, all of humanity has been redeemed. The trick now is we who have free will just have to surrender to that redemption. We have to surrender to the cross, and we will experience what has been changed for us. Same thing at Christmas, right? We use the phrase, a child is born unto us, right? Well, I mean, I'd be in trouble if a child were born unto me, right? But we talk about this notion that this is our birth. We all gather here. This is our Savior. We, too, are He. He, too, is us. That's what he means when you say, whatever you do the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. That there's an identity here between the only begotten son and all the adopted children. Right? And so, the catechism goes on to talk about four explicit reasons why this happened. And the first one is to reconcile us with the Father. Oftentimes in scripture, friends, or in church teaching, when you see God, your instinct should be to think Father. It may or may not be true. But in one way, God is kind of a what term. Right? If I wanted to know you, I'd say, what are you? You'd say, I'm human. I'd say, yeah. If I really wanted to get to know you, I'd say, who are you? Well, I'm Tracy. I'm Italian. You know? you talk, tell me about yourself. It's the same thing in our prayer lives, in our walks, our Christ life. It's okay if you pray to God indiscriminately. right? God is real. But in one way, God's kind of a what term. It's the substance. Who are you? Ah, I'm Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm lover, beloved, love. I am begetter, begotten, gift, whatever. But you, I think all of us are mature enough in the Christian faith to have an explicit kind of different relationship with each person of the Trinity. It's okay if you pray just to this God, but I'd invite you to go deeper. 
And maybe some of us have a hard time imagining father. Maybe some of us, you know, I didn't really have a dad growing up. But maybe it's something we need to be purified from and realize that all of our talk about God is an analogy. That God loves us like our fathers did, but even more so, even more perfectly, more constantly. So, so the word reconciles us with God. Things were off, right? God is perfect, we are imperfect. There had to be a bridge, there had to be a mediator. Think of a physician. What kind of physician would you rather have? The kind of physician who knows everything. The physician is smart, intelligent, capable. But the physician is scared of your sickness, so he or she stays in the hall and yells at you through the door. Or would you rather have the kind of doctor that walks into the room, you're in that funny little gown, he's got a cigarette, puts his arm around you, says, man, are you sick? I have no idea what's going on, but I'm here for you. Right? you got the perfect, you got the imperfect. Well, that's who Christ is in a way. He is the divine physician who is not afraid of our lowliness and in fact becomes part of us. Without the cigarette, of course, right? But notice, the reconciliation happens in a life that becomes death. Reconciliation happens in a God who becomes human. And who does all this? Mary. I invite you sometime to make the prayer of the Annunciation. I think Mary was trained as a good young Jewish woman. And I always think of her saying, wait a sec, God, you're asking for what? You want me to give my humanity to your son? But if you are perfect, the only thing I can give him is imperfection. If you are life, God, the only thing I can give him is death. If you are greatness, God, the only thing I can give you is littleness, smallness. And so she does. But notice in in Mary's yes, Everything the Greek philosophers thought were contraries and opposites, life, death, light, dark, infinity, finitude, mortality, immortality, all become reconciled. Meaning now there's no place in our life, in our story, that God can't be present. There's nothing that is distant from God. Even on Good Friday when we hear the Son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, what could be worse than being abandoned by God? What could be more scary than being forgotten by your Father. But even there, God is present. Even on that cross, God is saying, no, look, I'm with you. Even when you cry out, God, where are you? You've abandoned me. Christ is with us. That's what reconciliation means. To bring what we thought was opposite together. Hmm? Saints and sinners. That's who you and I are. We have a phrase in the Jesuits, contemplatives in action. That's who we are, right? Aquinas says that's the highest kind of Christian life. Those who are too busy in the world not to pray. Those who are off in the cloister praying. not. He says, that's not bad. That's pretty good. But the contemplative in action is actually the highest state. And it's not just us. It's obviously you too. Are you getting enough contemplation? Are you taking enough time for prayer? Hmm? Secondly, the Word became flesh so that we might know God's love. Now, this is really intriguing. We only know what we have in our senses first, right? We only know the things that we see, feel, taste, hear. You and I can play games in our minds. We can think of things that don't really exist in reality, like a unicorn. But we only have an image of a unicorn because we've seen a horse, we've seen, you know, paintings, whatever. So think of it. Is the church saying this, that no one knew God's love until Jesus Christ, until God became visible? I think it is. The Jews had a taste of it, for sure. They had a foreshadowing of it. But love is ultimately what? Laying one's life down. No greater love does a man have. 
And so we didn't really know God's love until we saw the cross. Thirdly, the Word became flesh to be our model of holiness. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now think about that. A model of holiness. Now you and I use that word holy a lot in our walk, don't we? It's related to the word whole. This is what I meant about sin. I don't think sin is ultimately the metaphysical problem. I think what the problem is, is our divided hearts. It's our wanting to be gods, but not really. Our desire to be holy, but not totally, right? I mean, how many of us have divided hearts? I want to be healthy, but boy, that pizza for breakfast, that was good, right? I want to be holy, but I'm going to sleep in today, not say my prayers, and so on. You and I are divided, right? Um, Catullus' favorite poem about his girlfriend, right? Odi et amo, I hate her and I love her. St. Augustine's prayer when he's 16, O Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. Well, where's the division in our hearts? Holiness says no. It comes together. In fact, here's kind of a really, I think, cool etymology. The word to throw in Greek is ball lane. We get the word ball, obviously. You throw two things together, together, sim, you get a symbol. If you throw something over the top, high, hyper, you get a hyperbole. Hear that? What if I told you the Greek prefix to scatter was dia, like diaspora or diastolic in your blood pressure, to go out? Who is diabolo? The devil. The devil's the one that wants to scatter your life, to have no wholeness. And so I act like this when I'm at the Regali Center. I act like this when I'm in schnooks. Get out of my way. Right? That we have these divided lives. Right? So this is, I think, what Christ wants to reconcile in us not just the cosmic forces of light and dark and death and life, but even our own hearts, to make us understand that we have one ultimate purpose, one ultimate goal, to become saints. And how do we do that? Acting real... No, by surrendering. Letting the Father have us. Letting the Father's love come over us at every moment and thereby act accordingly, right? The fourth reason the church gives is to make us partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter... All right, Pope, Pope Peter, the first pope, wrote two letters um, when he was in prison in Rome. He gave them to the gospel guy, Mark. Mark was his secretary. Um, that's why in the gospel of Mark, you don't got that get-behind-me-Satan stuff with Peter. <laughs> we'll leave that out. Um, <laughs> right? But notice, the word became flesh to make us participants in God's life. Now, this is a really important word, partakers, not possessors. We should never think that we possess something of God apart from God. It's all about relationship. It's not about perfection. Don't think you have something and you can go off and do what you want apart from the Lord. No. Everything is gift at every moment. Without me, you can do nothing. We become partakers, not possessors. All right? Tertullian, a third century North African theologian. He says, you know, when you have a piece of metal, you can do stuff with it, um, but it's not very useful. To make it useful, you've got to put it in fire. Then it takes on a new glow. It, it takes on a malleability. You can form it and shape it. It doesn't cease being metal, but it's now partaking of another nature, the fire. And that's our souls in Christ. We don't cease being human in Christ. In fact, we become more and more human. But we do that through relationship, through surrender, through this kind of union and participation in God's life. For this is why the Word became man and the Son of God became the Son of man. So that man, by entering into communion, union with the Word, and thus receiving divine adoption, might become a son or daughter of God. St. Irenaeus died around 180, martyred, we're not quite sure when. Bishop of Lyon, France. Second century. I mean, this is solid Christian stuff. 
The Word became human so we can become divine. Think of that. Christianity, if you will, is a two-act play. In the first act, God becomes human. Da-da-da-da! But that's only the first half. The second half is now that we become like God. We become, right, these divinely adopted sons and daughters. That's why we can pray our Father, right? And the new translation of the new, you know, the Mass is wonderful. At the Savior's command, informed by divine teaching, we, what's the priest say? Dare to say, right? We dare to say. It is daring to call yourself a child of God. It's a lot easier to say, well, no, I'm the child of Maureen and Jack, you know. I mean, Maureen and Jack are good people, but they're human and mortal and fallible. Okay, I can be that. I can be fallible and mortal, right? I can be a good Cardinals fan. Um, there was no beer served at the game yesterday. They lost the opener. <laughs> Thank you. But how do you identify yourself ultimately? Republican, Democrat, Missourian, Cardinals fan? I mean, our ultimate identity is to be the adopted children of God. And when that happens, then our, our lives change because we now belong to a new home. We have a new set of identities. We have a new set of expectations that we receive this divine adoption. Or think of any family that has adopted children. My oldest sister's adopted. All three of my sisters have adopted children. And if you walked into their family, if you walked into their homes, you couldn't tell their only begotten children from their adopted children, right? They don't treat their naturally born children differently than the adopted children. And you couldn't tell the difference. I mean, the African-American and the Korean would probably give it away a little bit, right? <laughs> but think of how we, would cast, how, we would, how we would condemn a family that fed their naturally born children first and then the adopted children later. And if we really believe the creed that we are the made children of God, we have to own this fact that the Father loves you just as much as he loves the Son. The difference is how much we allow ourselves to be loved. How much do we surrender? But you and I have been adopted. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. St. Athanasius, 4th century deacon who wrote the creed. That's strong language. You're called to become not, not just virtuous, not just you know, law following. You're called to become God. Well, no, I can't. I'm human. That's right. You'll become God in a human way. Well, why is that? Because you're made in God's image and likeness. Think of your mirror. When you look in the mirror, that thing looks just like you. you want, it, it, it's like it wants to be you, right? It's following you around. It's doing what you do. Well, that's what it means to be an image. When we follow God, we start to take on his face, his identity, right? And so often in the scriptures, people don't recognize God because they have this preconceived image. Even Mary Magdalene on Easter morning, she doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the what? Gardener. We're back in Eden. huh? We're back in this place of ultimate decision. She can't recognize Jesus because she has no idea that God could defeat death. In fact, she was content. How many of our Christian brothers and sisters are content with just a corpse? That's all they want out of life. I'll just do my minimal duty. She weeps because there's not a corpse there. How low can your expectations get? And she couldn't see Jesus out of the sorrow and out of how she thought God had to act. But notice this kind of invitation. No, we get it all. We're called to become God. And then finally, Aquinas. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in His divinity, there's that sharing, participation again, assumed our nature so that He made a man might make men and women gods. Again, you've got to put this in your own language that you find helpful. 
But we've really kind of lost this ultimate invitation to become other Christs, to become the branches upon the vine, to become, if you will, disciples that are so in love with our leader, we take on everything he is, right? All right. Carol Hauslander, great 20th century theologian, lived from, I think, 01 to 53. She died in 1953. She never, never had a family. She never married... And out of that solitude, out of that loneliness, if you will, she developed some of the best spiritual theology that we have in the 20th century. Um, I really encourage you to find some of her stuff. Christ used the flesh and blood of Mary for his life on earth. The word of love was uttered in her heartbeat. Christ used his own body to utter his love on the hearth. No, it should be earth, sorry. His perfectly real body with bone and sinew and blood and tears. Now, here's the deal. Christ uses our bodies to express his love on earth, our humanity. A Christian life is a sacramental life. It's not a life lived only in the mind, only by the soul, but through the bodies of men and women. Christ toils and endures and rejoices. He loves and dies. In them he is increased, set free, imprisoned, restrained. In them he is crucified and buried and rises from the dead. Our humanity is the substance of the sacramental life of Christ in us, like the wheat for the host, grape for the chalice. Christ works his love through material as well as spiritual things. Into his worship following his own lead, the church, his church, brings material things, pure wax, flame, oil, salt, gold, water, linen, the voices of the people, the gestures and actions of people, our own souls and bodies, the substance of our flesh and blood. All this is consistent with the Incarnation when Christ took the human nature of Our Lady to be Himself. Notice what God needed to save the world, our human condition. He didn't save the world from heaven, He saved it from earth. He didn't save it as God, He saved it as a man. And the very stuff that you and I take for granted, the very stuff that you and I are, our bodies, our blood, our desires, our passions, our love of food and wine and and sunshine, that's the stuff God needed to save the world. We can sometimes over-spiritualize the spiritual life so easily and always think of God out there. Think of God as spirit. A good friend of mine, well, he, he was a Lutheran pastor in town, and he, he got a job at Ave Maria University, and he couldn't... So he had to be Catholic to get the job, but he was also a Luther, Lutheran pastor here in St. Louis last year. So we didn't bring him into the Easter Vigil. It had been too, we brought him in at Pentecost, and then he told his flock. I mean, he didn't want to disrupt their Easter. But getting to know him and his wife, and I talked to his wife, I said, um, so you, you're going to do this too, right? She said, oh yeah, me and the kids. I said, what was your beginning of Catholicism? What did you, this, her husband has a PhD in scripture from Cambridge. She says, you know, my mom was dying. And I was talking to her one day, and she looked up and she says, I can't wait to get out of this body, then all my sins will be forgiven. And she goes, I realized at that point, my mom had kind of missed a really crucial part of the Christian message, that these bodies are good. Our sins aren't in our bodies, they're in our souls. Adam and Eve weren't kicked out of Eden for what they did with their bodies, it's what they did with their minds. They disobeyed God. But this stuff, this world, the very concrete things in your day, on your walls, at home, in your glove compartment, all that stuff is what God is so in love with he became part of. And that's just something we always forget. So when he ascended into the world, what did he do? When he ascended out of this world into heaven, what did he do? He instituted the Eucharist, right? And he continues to form his church. That's who you and I are. We are the body of Christ. Let's move on.
Teresa of Avila, this beautiful prayer. Christ has no body. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Now, don't be shocked. Jesus has three bodies. The second Mary said yes. He received a one-cell body, right? It continued to grow, obviously. The night before he dies, he takes some bread and says what? This is my body. This is my blood. But then we hear things like this. Acts 9, 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Huh. Me? I thought you were off in heaven. No, I'm you too. This is my body, you people. Again, those of you with children, I mean, aren't they you? Right? Somebody slapped your kid, you say, well, that must have hurt. I mean, you feel it too, right? How many of you parents, if you walked into your child's room and it's the middle of the night and they're sniffling and sneezing and sweating, they're throwing up, I imagine a good parent says, oh, honey, if I could take that away from you, I would. I'd take on your sniffles, I'd take on your tummy ache, I'd take on everything that's troubling you right now, but I can't. I can only be alongside you. But notice, God, creator of all things, he can take our place. That's what that reconciliation on the cross means. The very thing that you and I deserve because of our sin, God says, no, I'll take it from you. I'll take on everything that you deserve in your fallen state, and I'll nail it to myself. And I really think in one way what Christ did the night before he died was this. What it means to be Jesus Christ, to be God made flesh. Don't ever forget that. You relate to the Holy Spirit differently. The Holy Spirit is in your car, he's in your home. Jesus Christ, he's God, so he can meet you there too, of course. But if you really want to get to know Jesus Christ as if you were living in first century Palestine, you wouldn't just sit in your room and think about this guy you heard about. You'd get up and go see him, go find him. That's what makes our churches so special. This is where Christ dwells, in those tabernacles, on that altar, in those monstrances. Because of Mary's yes, God is no longer everywhere. He's now somewhere. And you and I, in our Catholic faith, have the beauty of the particularity of the incarnation still going on. Our entire sacramental structure of the church is based on the fact that God became human. That's why we get up and go to a human to confess our sins. That's why we get up and have to go to Mass. One of my nieces has just become evangelical. And now on Sunday morning, she sits at home and listens to some radio show. And I said, you know what? When you get into heaven, Peter's going to say, nope, you can listen to it out there. But you don't really need to come in here, do you? She's like, that's not right. I said, yeah, you... (laughs) But see, why are we Catholics so hung up on Mass attendance? It's not to check the books. It's not about your envelopes. It's about recognizing not only the third commandment, but that God is particularly somewhere in the fullness of his body and blood. Right? So ask yourselves, is my relationship with Christ different than my relationship with the Holy Spirit? When I think of Jesus Christ, I think of this world. I think of my friends. I think of my own desires and passions. I think of the Holy Spirit. I think of this, you know, fire above me. But Christ is the one who came to earth literally. Right? The Holy Spirit didn't become a dove or fire. Right? Those are symbols. But Christ literally became human. And because that's true, the night before he died, he who promised he would never leave us orphans, he who promised he would be with us till the end of the age, God made flesh, took some body, took some bread, and said, now this is my flesh. Took some wine, said, now this is my blood. But notice, 
That host, that chalice, they don't have hands to go and help. They don't have ears to listen to the lonely. They don't have feet to go visit the shut-in. But you do, see. You are the third body, the mystical body. And if I can say, saints don't distinguish between the Eucharist and their neighbor. That's why for us Christians, love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable. And it's a lot easier to love God in a tabernacle, isn't it? Doesn't ask you for stuff, doesn't bother you, right? Doesn't pull on your... You know. Do you ever see that thing? One of the kids sent out this meme. Oops, sounds like this microphone just died. One of the kids sent out this meme of a little boy tugging on mom's dress, going, mom, 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 and it's Jesus and Mary. It says the, orig- the original rosary, right? Ten times, going, mom, 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 mom. <laughs> but notice, you and I are the hands and the feet and the heart of Christ. And the real saints in our tradition know that by loving Christ in the Eucharist, they can love Christ in their neighbor. And if they can see Jesus under bread and wine, how much more should we be able to see Jesus under flesh and blood? Right? That's why we can't distinguish or separate our loves. A couple days before my mom died, I walked into her room. She was in tears. And I said, Mom, are you, are you okay? And she said, no. I said, are you in pain? She said, no. And being the uh, good priest's son with all the learning... I said, Mom, do you, you want to go to confession again? And as only a little Italian mom could, she said, No, you idiot, I just went. I said, Okay. Right? <laughs> My mom's last words to me. I said, What's wrong? Thank you. She said, I don't want to... She said, I'm disappointing Jesus. I said, What do you mean, disappointing Jesus? She says, I don't want to leave you kids, and that must really hurt him. Now, think what my mom did here. She separated her loves. She thought that if she was going to impress the big guy... She couldn't let on how much she loved other people. So uh, I went and got the scriptures, and we read uh, the story of Lazarus. I said, Mom, look, even Jesus weeps at the loss of his friend, right? I said, you don't need to do this. The only way you can actually love God is by loving those whom God loves. I mean, think of your own friends. Your friendship never terminates in just one person. It always overflows. Oh, you know those people too. And love is always kind of pouring out, like Christ on the cross, like the Eucharist. But our love never stops in just the Son, the Father, Spirit. It doesn't stop in just God. You can't love God without loving your neighbor in Christianity. There's that inseparable unity between God and neighbor. And I think that's because the mystical body that you and I are is an expression of the incarnation still going on, as Carol Hauslander said, right? Still going on. That in you, Christ, in you right now, Christ is bored. He's hungry, right? He can't wait to finish this talk. Right? But imagine that. Imagine if you went home and you said, no, this is the lonely Christ, this is the struggling Christ, this teenage kid of mine, the bumbling Christ, you know. If our eyes could awaken to how Christ dwells in all of us, then we do become saints. One way to do this, I really think, and a big believer of, is the morning offering. That you and I have very busy lives, and we oftentimes don't have time to pray. But in the morning, if you could simply offer your day through this traditional prayer. See, when you were baptized... When we were all baptized, we were baptized in the priesthood, the prophecy, and the kingship of Christ. Priest, prophet, and king. What does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifice. Right? I offer the sacrifice of the Mass. You offer the sacrifice of your lives, of your work, of your careers, of your families. And here's the deal, friends. There's not going to be Mass in heaven. I'm going to be unemployed for eternity. Right? (laughs) We won't need Mass. But the people you offer, the lives you offer, those things are eternal. And so living out your priesthood of the faithful, I think in a very minimal but foundational way, is the morning offering. 
What does it mean to be a king or a queen? It means that no one's in charge of you. You are free. You don't have to sin. The only reason you sin is because you really want to. Face it, right? We're free. We are the sovereigns of our lives. And then prophets. Prophet isn't a fortune teller. It literally means profane, to speak for God, to, to offer a word of consolation, to offer a word of prayer. All right? Morning offering. Let's finish with this quote. It's one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis again. He got rid of his pipe. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Now think of that word vulnerable. Vulnera in Latin means wound. So vulnerable means the ability to be wounded. Is that true in your lives? What is easier, to be wounded by another or to put up a wall of ice? You know, anger isn't the worst of the sins because there's a certain intimacy in arguing, isn't there? There's a certain vulnerability in saying to another, you know what, when you said that, that really hurt me. That was a really stupid thing to say. Right? And so, notice this connection between love and vulnerability. To save the world, the Son of God became wounded. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Isn't that something? Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Died. Do you know when C.S. Lewis died? November 22nd, 1963. Where were you? You were a baby. You weren't even born, right? Yeah, the day Kennedy died. Also, Aldous Huxley, the science fiction writer, he died that day too. And Peter Kreeft, a philosophy professor at Boston College, has a great book about a bad Catholic, Kennedy, a good Protestant, Lewis, and an atheist, Huxley, all meeting at the pearly gates. It's kind of a, it's called Between Heaven and Hell. I recommend it if you have time. So let's end there. We're going to go praise Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. When I was at the University of Innsbruck, have you ever heard of the theologian Karl Rahner? Karl Rahner was kind of a big deal in his day, and his secretary is still alive, Karl Heinz Neufeld. And Father Neufeld, every Thursday night we had mandatory holy hour in Innsbruck. Father Neufeld would spend the first 55 minutes in truly Germanic prayer. He would kneel, his arms like this, his hands like this, and he would not move for 55 minutes. The last five minutes of Holy Hour, he would turn around and look at all of us Jesuits in the community. And at first I thought, this guy, something, he's blown a cog, something's wrong. But the more I got to know him, the more I realized that the love of the mystical body, this was his way of praying over the presence of Christ, not only in the Blessed Sacrament, but also in his brothers and sisters. I'm not suggesting this, I'm not recommending it. But what I thought was a really odd thing, the more I became understanding of the mystical body theology and tradition in our church, it kind of made sense. You know, you might not want to do it today, but I, I really think a really powerful way to pray as we leave here today is to pray over old photos, to pray over photo albums, and just begin your prayer once a month, once every couple of months, by saying, Lord, show me the faces through whom you've loved me. Show me the people in whom you have become incarnate for me. Okay? So maybe those faces, maybe those 
moments of gratitude can be our prayer for this next half hour. So why don't we uh, go up to the chapel? Two flights up? Three flights up? Just one, okay. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.